Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Well, good rainy morning to you. Good morning to you. From Southern Utah. Uh, it's beautiful here. It's cold. Weather has changed dramatically. It's in the 30s and 40s this week. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, and here it, in uh, beautiful Southern California or whatever I am, um, it's been a little rainy. So it's been changing a little bit over here too. But right now it's probably 70 and sunny. So, So I have a list today to get caught up on things. And I think that if we get to our topic, which I hope we will, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about epidurals. Uh, there's a lot been going on about epidurals. Uh, you know, I had a reel that that we'll talk about in a little bit uh, that went crazy and just sort of tangentially mentioned epidurals um, from the Spillover podcast. We'll talk about that. But I have been getting lots and lots of, and you have a couple births that we're going to talk about because I'm excited to hear about them because I know I was sort of in the middle of one of them that was sort of dragging on and on. <laughs> I want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, but I've been getting more and more, obviously we're getting more popular, which is really good. And I, by the way, our webinar, we haven't talked since we did our, um, our, our webinar on bringing the home, home birth hesitant on board. Yeah, so, that was fun. Yeah. How do you think it went? I think it was good for our first one out. I think it was great. So, uh, you know, as a team, we've talked about some things that we want to do to improve, including giving some additional resources to people, um, like in terms of data and stuff as they leave rather than just the lecture. So I think that that's going to be great. Um, there's never enough time. I feel like, you know, we keep it to 90 minutes because we know that like registering for something that's super long is harder for people. But I always feel like you and I could talk for many more hours about the subject. But I think it's a, I think it's a great start. Yeah. And, and, and again, people are shy initially to ask questions. And then once somebody opens up the, the floodgates, the questions come crazy. And, and it, and there's so many good questions about this topic, and I really think it's a great. I think it's a great topic because I get letters all week long, as probably you do too, or direct messages from people, often talking about people that are home birth hesitant in their family or their their spouse or something like that. But this week, I noticed a theme in my letters, and the theme was this. It said, "This is my summary of it." Organized medicine is pushing fear, and then they offer relief from the fear that they push. Yeah. And just this morning, I was reading a thread on on polio. And, you know, this is what I do. This is people think like I have this really stunning, great life and stuff like that. I'm sitting here on a Sunday morning. We're recording, and I'm reading a thread on polio on Twitter. Um, <laughs> The people uh, uh, named Lovejoy wrote in, and he's and he wrote what I think is a great summary of things. And I'll I'm thinking about going through this thread maybe on next week's podcast if we have a little bit of time for that uh, because it's very enlightening about what how we've been gaslit about polio since its onset. But he says humans are usually responsible for causing their own maladies. Then quote science saves them unquote yay science. 
ignoring the fact that unrestrained applied chemical innovations like pesticides, like GMOs and stuff like that, i.e. science, trying to make things better causes the problem in the first place. Hubris is the disease. Yeah. I love that. Very true. Well, like yeah. I'm always saying it's all interconnected, you know? Everything I got is- I got a I got a message this morning from Dr. Poppy, uh, who I follow very closely because she's really brilliant. And she sent an article about they created a uh, chimera monkey. I don't know what that is. Chimera monkey is having the uh, genes of two different animals together. Mm-hmm. They're in mythology. You see them like the um, the centaur or the. Oh Minotaur. yeah, yeah. All right, mm-hmm. they've committed a, a chimera monkey, and it's it's like, <laughs> it's like Jeff Goldblum in um, in Jurassic Why? Park. Oh. Yeah, he says. You 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 were so eager to figure out if you uh you you could that you never thought that whether you should. It's like yeah. so I'm just I said to her, of course, this, the standard line I said to her is um what what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> why why are we making chimera monkeys? <laughs> uh, right. When there's other things that could be so much more important in terms of how we spend our money and our time, right? Yeah, and there's probably like uh, thousands of species of monkeys. Do we need another one? <laughs> I don't know. This is not my realm of expertise. Oh, that's my God. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so next on my list is a couple of shout outs. Uh, I want to shout out to the Home Birth Australia group. I got the good fortune of giving a virtual lecture to them this, this past week. And it was fun. But it was the hardest lecture I think I've ever given. Because I was limited in time. Which is not good for me. No, <laughs> talking to a screen, mm-hmm. no sound and no audience, and yet there's a live audience, there's like 200 people sitting there, listening, and I have no wife, no feedback, no nothing. So that's not an easy thing for me to do. I don't really like doing that. But they're such great people in Australia, and we have, and by the way, I think they're number one or two in our following after the United States. So yeah, I love the Australian people, and then. Yesterday we did the panel discussion. It was for me. It was at nine thirty at night because it was three thirty in the afternoon there. By the way, isn't it? It's a little bizarre for me that Australia is only six hours behind me in Utah, a day ahead. So it just seems like they're on the other side of the earth. Shouldn't they be like about twelve hours behind? But I guess they're not. So that's my math head trying to figure that out. That they're only six hours behind me, but a day ahead. So I was talking into the future. And guess who was on the panel? Who? Ibu Robin. Aw, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, a midwife from um, from Australia named Janine, who I hadn't met before. And then uh, Gloria LeMay. Oh, cool. That's amazing. Uh, she, she went off on a tangent. Someone asked her about her time in jail. And she went <laughs> off on a tangent and told this amazing tale of her time in jail. So it was a great story. So that was that was fun. Right. And then I did a also did a lecture um, where I just had to do it. I had talked to myself on Zoom and then I sent it to a group in Armenia, the Michelle O'Dont uh, Maternity Center, I think it's called. And they're going to be presenting that. I think they already did or maybe it's this week. Uh, so I'll be speaking sort of not live, but 
recorded to people in Armenia who are very interested because Armenia is a country that there are no independent midwives. Home birth is illegal and uh, no one probably is doing breach delivery there. So yeah, you mentioned that last podcast. Oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, so, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your births before I go off on, oh, I got a couple more shout outs first. Uh, our, our friend Victoria Flores is, is on Nathan Riley's podcast this week. So people could tune in and listen to get a little more introduction into her background. We had her on ourselves a year or two ago. And then, um, I listened to an episode of mom's off the record podcast with the guest of her name, her trade name or brand name is just the inserts. And she's on Instagram. I'm not sure what else she's on. And she was, she was, uh, banned from Instagram for a while because all she was doing, all she does is she posts the package inserts. <laughs> but that's and they why, banned her. Yeah. They banned her because, because in their policies, they have something about if anything creates vaccine hesitancy, it can be banned. So reading the package inserts, <laughs> but anyway, it's besides that, she's just really bright and it's a really good interview. So that's mom's off the record podcast. And that one came out November 17th. And then one last thing, I watched the documentary called Shot Dead, which uh, features Peter McCullough and our friend, uh, Dr. James Thorpe. Uh, And it talks about three families and the tragedies of babies or or families or mothers who got the certain vaccine that we all know what we're talking about. Um, And it caused tragedies in their family. And one of the most stupid things that shocked me the most was when Dr. Thorpe was talking about the loss of a baby with multiple anomalies who was born with a diaphragmatic hernia and was going to die because those babies don't develop lung tissue. So they'll live for hours and they're going to die. And in him going over the records, they found out that even though they knew this baby was going to die, guess what they gave this newborn baby? Hepatitis B. Hepatitis B vaccine. Crazy. To a baby that's going to die. It's insane. That was going to die. It wasn't like it's going to be a miracle or there's going to be a transplant or there's going to be anything. And in the records, they said hepatitis B administered. Because the baby lived about 12 hours. That's crazy. That's, yeah, I guess crazy sums it up. Uh, I would think of malevolent evil, stupid, <laughs> uh, uh, unbelievable. But I, I you know, I, I suspect the hospital has a quota for every baby born that they give the hepatitis B vaccine, they get a higher percentage of reimbursement from the pharmaceutical. I can't even imagine what the nurse was thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just checking the box, right? It's not even thinking, I mean, talk about no individualization. Like I, yeah, don't even understand that at all. So, uh, yeah, so that uh, let's have a let's have some birth stories to change the topic a little <laughs> bit. So tell us, tell us, because because you know I don't have them anymore. All Very right. Well, I, oh, 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 go ahead. Um, I was uh I was listening to last week's because I wanted to see where I left off um on this great adventure that I've been on with this family, and um I mentioned last time 
that um, the mom had a big bleed and went into the hospital and got a bunch of different opinions about what it might be and checked herself out AMA. Um, all the bleeding went away. The kind of plan was to continue and move forward with home birth unless she had another bleed. Well, um, she did have another bleed and it wasn't nearly the same amount as the first one, but because we already had a plan, we assumed that this was a partial separation. The plan was to go into the hospital. So when they called me and said that she was bleeding again, um, she had had a membrane sweep actually with this doctor, Dr. Salinas, who had, um, they had consulted with to back her up and they kind of had a tentative plan for an induction if they needed it. So she starts bleeding. Um, and so we go into Cottage Hospital and uh, worked very closely with Dr. Kano. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Kano and to Dr. Salinas, who both uh, were incredibly supportive for to this mom um, who was strongly advocating um, every step of the way. Um, I even I was a little like stretched and challenged in um her approach which was like there was no reason it was it was totally aligned with everything that we talk about but it was so outside of anything that any one of my clients had ever done before that i i myself put this podcast and the faith the beliefs that we have i still was like is this okay are we like what are we doing you know so anyway she goes in for this bleed they decide to start a very, very, very slow induction process to really respect the fact that she did not want to have a C-section. It was like her number one thing was she did not want to have a C-section. Um, so they ended up doing the things for like three days at Cottage. I think it was, yeah, two and a half days. And then this doctor that they liked was going to be going off shift. And so their decision, along with Dr. Salinas, was that they would stop the, the induction where they were. They had kind of just started Pitocin just to feel out and see what Pitocin would look like. Um, and they took, you know, the morning, like probably five or six hours, took a walk on the beach, went and repacked their bags, had breakfast, and then transferred to a hospital in Ventura, which I think I've mentioned before is about 40 minutes away from Santa Barbara, to continue the induction. So that was interesting. I don't think I've ever had anyone do that. Um, Dr. So wait, so wait, let me just, let me, let me clarify. So yeah. they were at cottage hospital for how long? Like two and a half days. What were they doing? And they hadn't started Pitocin until then. So what were they doing for the first two and a half days? Um, we had, uh, different versions of side attack, I think not side attack, um, Cervidil. Cervidil was the, was what they did in the beginning. And then, um, oh, it was, it was a whole, I won't get into all of it. It was a lot of back and forth about like taking things slower and, um, yeah, there's just, it was a lot. Um, but okay. by the time she left, she was a little bit more dilated. And then when we got to, um, the other hospital, remember we thought it was a partial separation. So the doctor at this other hospital puts in a speculum which no one else had done. And he looks and he says, the bleeding is obviously coming from your cervix, which was what Melissa Drake had said when we first went in for the first bleed that she suspected that it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the placenta. And all these other doctors that saw her 
all believed that it was um, the placenta. So they were like, why didn't anyone else ever put in a speculum? I said, well, because you assume that it's a partial separation. You don't usually put a speculum in unless you're confirming rupture or something, right? It's just not very common in labor you put in a speculum. So anyways, this doctor basically said it's definitely coming um, from your cervix. She's got something called adenosis. Adenomyosis. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which I had never heard of before, but that might be part of what was happening. Like a, like clusters of um, growth kind of that formed inside and maybe on the inside of the cervix as well. So then as things started dilating, kind of like a polyp, right? Well, yeah, I I can't say I got I got let's stop here for a second and let me go through some things. Okay. When you have early unexplained bleeding like that, it is standard it should be standard to put a speculum in and take a look. The the problem of course, the medical model kind of defers from doing things that where you have to put your hands on people. It's almost all tech and no hands-on or looking. Cuz she could have had a large cervical polyp that was infarcting or bleeding. She could have had a pedunculated fibroid that was bleeding. She could have any of those things. Now, maybe on vaginal exam, you might feel them, but apparently they didn't. Uh, But the diagnosis of adenomyosis, adenomyosis is sort of a form of endometriosis. What it is, is technically speaking, is that the the endometrial tissue that you shed every month for endometriosis goes into odd places like the tubes or the ovaries or the bowel or the, or whatever. Adenomyosis is where that tissue in, invades the muscular wall of the uterus. It's a suspected diagnosis. The only way to really diagnose that is, you know, through pathology, like when you do a hysterectomy or a biopsy, which she didn't have, and no one's going to do a biopsy. There's no reason to. So the suspicion is that the, probably because of the way it, it looked, it looked very, adenomatous you know it just looked Mm -hmm. very glandular and that that's probably what it is it may not be true adenomyosis but i don't know that there's a term for what it is if unless the cervix was just raw and it was called it was everted a little bit there was some ectropion and you're seeing the endocervical glandular cells as opposed to the squamous cells on the outside of the cervix and that's probably more information than anybody's listening really wants What you're saying is the bleeding was coming from the cervix because they could see, you could see directly that it was bleeding, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was important information because now we're not as concerned about like this separation of the, of the placenta causing some kind of trauma to the baby where the baby wasn't getting what it needed. Right. So it kind of changed the dynamic. So they were continuing with the, with the, um, with the induction for a little bit. And then it got to a point where the baby wasn't liking the Pitocin and they wanted to break her bag and put on a fetal scalp monitor. I mean, and she was just like, no, (laughs) no, we're not doing any of that. I don't want you to break my bag. I know all the risks of breaking my bag. I mean, she's so, like I told you, she's so informed. She's like, this is going to lead to a C-section. There's no real reason to be doing this anymore. And Dr. Salinas was like, I support you. I think the only reason that your baby's unhappy is because we're pushing it with Pitocin. You can go home and see how things go. And so we did. And she finally, uh, her bag ruptured um, 
a day, like a day before she went into labor and she ended up having a home delivery and my assistant wasn't there yet, which was not exactly how I had hoped this birth would be. So I was there by myself and the baby was born with a lot, a lot, a lot of mech um, and a Apgar of four. And um, so I gave the baby some breaths and the heart rate and the respiratory effort was great from the very beginning, which was great. And um, baby came around very slowly and had some transient tachypnea for a little bit, um, but is at home and doing really well. Um, yeah, there was some like delayed um, reflexes, like the suck, like the baby suck wasn't great. And some of the other reflexes, it was definitely one of those ones where I was kind of like, are we going to need to go in, you know? Um, and I told her, I said, you know, if this baby was born in the hospital, 1000%, you would have been separated from your baby immediately. And that baby would have been in NICU for sure. Um, and yeah, we're, you know, I'm checking on them every day and going in and making sure that breastfeeding is going well and baby's doing awesome. But it was definitely one of those situations that stretched me. Oh, and in between all of this, her bag ruptures. So I'm expecting that she She's going to go into labor in the middle of the night. And I get a call from another family who's in labor who didn't tell me that they, the contractions had started. And the dad was like, no doula. The dad says, um, hey, she's having a lot of bleeding. I'm like, great. And I said, send me a picture. And it was normal. And she said, and he said, and her contractions are every two minutes. And I said, oh, over a minute long and he's like yeah I'm like how long has that been going on he's like a couple of hours I was like all right I'm coming so uh this well these are relaxed it's a relaxed family that's good yeah so this primate first time mom birthed like a multip I mean she breathed her baby out she pushed for maybe 20 minutes she had a you know I don't know maybe a six hour labor it was just like beautiful little bit more difficult uh, postpartum. She passed out in the tub. We had to do smelling salts and crawl to the bathroom, give her an IV and all that stuff. But um, the birth itself was great. And I've been thinking like, God, I've been having so many issues lately. I had another mom I had to send that same day. I had to send her into the ER because she was having like back pain and blood in her urine. And I couldn't tell if she was in early labor or if she had a UTI. And Turns out she had uh, kidney stones that she was going to pass. Um, so, I mean, it was just like, wow, my job is not always just kind of like simple. Let's just have a baby and <laughs> feel your belly. And I'm like, No, if this... you watch the Instagram videos, it looks like everybody's just having a beautiful water birth and there's, <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing to really challenged me for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's great. It's a tale of two births that, that both ended up having home births, but they certainly took different pathways to it. I've never heard one like the first one. Right. Me neither. Unexplained. Thing. <clears throat> they didn't know what it was. I, you even asked me about it and I thought it, it, it can't be a real abruption because the baby's fine. She's not in pain, that sort of thing. But could it be a partial head separation or something? Yeah. But no one, you know, took a look. She went to one hospital and then she was doing okay. And then she said, I don't want to be here anymore because I don't like the, the doctor I like is leaving. So I'm going to go to another hospital. And then someone takes a look there and they say, well, it's probably not this. It's probably that. And then they say, 
we want to do all these interventions to get your baby out. And she says, no. And then she goes home and she has a baby. And then, of course, the baby has Mac and has, you know, Apgar issues and respiratory issues and stuff like that. So, yeah, you got your money's worth there, Lister. <laughs> Definitely. They gave me a sizable tip. Let's just say that, which was oh, very they kind. They did. They did, which was very that's, thoughtful. That's really yeah. nice that they gave you a tip. Yeah, they did. I, mean, I, I don't remember that really ever happening. No, I mean, every once in a while, but I think that they knew that I went above and beyond what most people and, and midwives would have done. So, um, and, you know, I want to remind you guys, if you go back and listen to last week, as I begin to tell the story, the very first doctor that checked her said she needed a C-section right away. So it's just one of those times when you, you know, I could have just trusted that doctor too, because we, you know, I, I didn't, I was definitely outside of my realm and she really, really, really advocated for herself. And it's interesting. And she, yeah. And the doctor would have been wrong. Shocking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And no one would have known because she would have had a C-section. Right. And the baby would have been fine. And everybody would have said, look at that. How great, the, how great is that? We have a great baby. Right. Um, but it's not what the mother wanted and it's not apparently what she needed. Yeah. And even though the outcome took days and the outcome was stressful for a lot of people involved and the baby had, you know, a, you know, a little more difficulty coming around. Ultimately, this is better for the baby. It's better for the mother and certainly better for the mother's future babies for this to have worked out this way. Yeah. And only, only in the midwifery model. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. Would this have happened? This cannot happen in the medicalized assembly line, algorithmic shift oriented medical model where no one has, no one knows you, no one has the time or, or even cares to know you. Yeah. Yep. Bliss. What is element? L M N T. It's a, Amazing sponsor. First of all, we love them so much, but it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS like us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood, and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before when I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot of <laughs> sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite, uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango yeah. chili. But I, I do have, I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a 
deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Okay. That's okay. A good, good story. All Thanks right. So for I, listening. You know, oh, I, you know, that's what, that's what we both do. Because, all right. <laughs> I mean, we do a lot of talking and everybody else is listening at home. I know. Usually they're out walking their dog. A lot of you are out walking your dog. You send pictures. <laughs> Of yourself walking your dog, listening to the podcast. I love that too. Um, by the way, give us five stars and write a review. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I wanted to get to a couple more pieces of news. You know, uh, I can't really go more than one or two weeks without some sort of new ACOG stupidity. And ACOG has an Instagram account now, which I follow. And, and you know, sometimes what they say is actually true but it's because it's not related to pregnancy <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but now they have a, they had a post last week that said birth control is safe. Misinformation isn't. And it goes on to say birth control provides individuals with the agency they need to plan their future for empowering our members and their patients to make informed reproductive care. Misinformation about birth control is on the rise. Is it? <laughs> According to them, it is. <laughs> well, you know what the definition of misinformation is. Misinformation is information that that whoever is in power doesn't like. Right. Misinformation is. And then, and then they ironically say this, knowing the facts about birth control can help you take control of your reproductive health in the way that works best for you. Okay. So <laughs> people should... Go to ACOG, read their brochures about birth control, and then watch Ricky and Abby's movie, The Business of Birth Control. And there's some books out on that as well. And then you make a decision. But my general statement is this, and people know, that the more I learn about the pharmaceutical industry and the more I learn about industrial medicine, I just don't see how they can be wrong as often as they are without it being on purpose. So there's something going on there because just about everything they say is wrong. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. Um, it's upside down, whether it's the food pyramid or the vaccine schedule or uh, don't exercise when you're, uh, when you're, you know, when you're, when there's a virus going around, don't, don't see your family. Uh, everything that they say is wrong, you know, um, so I just, it's, it, it's one of those crazy things. And I always say this, if their outcomes were good, if we weren't having rising mortality rates and all cause mortality, and if we weren't having um, rising rates of chronic illness and chronic disease in, in both young people and old people, did you know, Bliss, that the, uh, the average um, age of death for males in the United States in the last five or six years has fallen by five years? I did. Okay, because it was about 78 and now it's about 73 for men. So let's see what's happened in the last five years that could possibly have caused that. Hmm. All right. And and then one thing that was big, big publicized, obviously our podcasts are delayed a couple of weeks, but about a week ago, an article came out talking about the infant mortality rate 
in the United States for the first time in 20 years has risen about 3%. Now, 3% doesn't sound like a lot. It's huge. When you see a 3% rise in something that's been falling steadily for a long time. And that's from 20, 2002 to 2021, the infant mortality rate decreased by 22%. And in 2021 to 22, it increased 3%. All right. What do you, by the way, what year did the um, vaccine well, come out? Yeah. And was approved for pregnant women and uh, 21. And down, yeah, 21. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The first year to increase in over 20 years. And, and then somebody uh, mockingly says, any wild ideas what could be, what it could be? Anything different happened in these years? Still baffled? Um, but, but they are still baffled. They act, I watched news art. I watched mainstream news articles on this and it's never mentioned the, the, it's not just an 800 pound gorilla. It's like a herd of elephants in the room is never mentioned. It's cognitive dissonance. They just don't want to look at that. It's just too hard. Well, and, and it's cognitive dissonance, uh, encouraged by financial gain. That's true. That's what it is. It's, yeah. it's easier to rely on your cognitive dissonance to, to excuse your complicity in accepting money and funds for, for pushing this on people. But I mean, also, there's cognitive dissonance amongst the the general population. population. I mean, they're not getting any money out of it, but they still are going to get boosters and, and you know, I've yet to get apologies from my family. How about you? No, it's, you know, it's not, it's just a belief system that is not going to necessarily be penetrated. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a limb here and I'm going to say right now I have a, a cousin of mine and uh, he's older, he's 80. He's one of the most vibrant men I've ever known. Brilliant. And a dear friend of mine who's in her fifties who are both in hospice care and they're both going to die in the next week. I'm sorry. And I can't, you know, obviously people died before this happened, but the things that these people are dying from are, I, I won't get into specifically, but they're certain, they're like turbo cancer. And if somebody had a liver disease, alcoholic liver disease, and they took this vaccine, it attacks the tissues that are already inflamed and makes them worse. And this friend of mine went into a complete liver failure and she needs a liver transplant, but she's not well enough to have it. So that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen this. I mean, I don't know that anyone listening has it have a family member or a friend who's lost somebody or seen somebody turn seriously ill or have, like I said, turbo cancer or miscarriages or blood clots that they had never seen anything like that in the decades before. So. I got a request from a woman to write an exemption uh, to for her to get the uh, not get the flu vaccine for work. Mm -hmm. I did a consult with her to make it legit, and I wrote her a thing. She's pregnant, and mm -hmm. she doesn't want the flu vaccine, which contains um, see the flu leveling still has mercury in it, I believe. If you get the multi the, the multi dose vial has mercury in it, we did a whole thing on that. I think just not too long ago. Yeah. So. She got this email from her employer, the, uh, the, the hospital she works at. She says, the deadline for receiving a flu vaccination or completing a declination form is December 1st, 2023. Strongly encourage our employers, excuse me, our employees to receive a vaccine. 
This not only helps protect the health of our employees, but the vaccination rates affects our star rating and the amount of reimbursement we get from Medicare. Hmm. Interesting. And then if you have received your vaccine from a pharmacy or provider other than occupational health, please provide us with a copy. I mean, there's no shame in them putting that right in the letter. Right. We're going to, we're going to, it's going to cause more safety for our, the people in the hospital, which of course has never really been shown to be true. Cause sometimes as we know, the, the flu vaccine has got efficacies down in the teens and sometimes it's a little higher, but again, does it really work in the face of all these other vaccines and all the other autoimmune diseases we've, we've given people lately, but to say it affects our star rating and the amount of reimbursement we get from Medicare. I mean, everyone knows this, but there it is in writing. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay. One more story before we talk, start to talk about our topic, which is uh, epidurals today. This, this, I think you'll get a big kick out of bliss. Okay. Our friends, right. Alicia and Meredith at Intentional Birth mm-hmm. sent me an email. They, they were playing around with chat GPT and they asked chat G- GPT to give a, um, a home birth story. So this is this is written and think about how you would write a story about a home birth. And this is scary for me that this comes out like this. In a cozy house nestled amidst the tranquil garden. <laughs> Sarah and David eagerly awaited the arrival of their first child. The room was filled with soft candlelight and the soothing sound of gentle music played in the background. Sarah had always dreamed of a home birth surrounded by the comfort of her own space and the love of her husband. As the contractions began, Sarah focused on her deep breathing, finding strength and soothing presence of her midwife, Emily. David David held Sarah's hand, whispering words of encouragement and love. They prepared for this moment for months, attending childbirth classes, practicing relaxation techniques, and creating a serene environment for the birth. The room was adorned with calming colors, and a large birthing tub stood ready by the window, filled with warm water. Sarah's favorite essential oils filled the air with their gentle fragrance, creating an atmosphere of peace and serenity. As the hours passed, Sarah's strength grew and the contractions became more intense. Emily provided gentle guidance and support, helping Sarah find comfortable positions and offering soothing massages. David remained steadfast by his wife's side, his love unwavering. Finally, after a moment that both felt eternal and fleeting, Sarah felt the powerful urge to push. With David's unwavering support, there's a lot of that unwavering support there, and Emily's expert guidance, she surrendered to the rhythm of her body, the room filled with the palpable sense of anticipation and love. In the warm water of the birthing tub, Sarah brought her child into the world with a primal cry that echoed through the room. The baby's first cries were met with tears of joy from Sarah and David, a testament to the incredible bond they had formed during this journey. Emily placed the newborn in Sarah's arms, and as mother and child gazed at each other for the first time, time seemed to stand still. The room was filled with an overwhelming sense of love, connection, and the miracle of life. Yay! Congratulations. Reminds me of the birth that you had just just the other day. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay, so they sent that to me. So I said to Alicia and Meredith, I said, Ask ChatGPT to write 
a story about a hospital birth. Okay. And here it is. Once upon a time, who writes once upon a time? In a bustling city, a young couple named Sarah and Michael eagerly awaited the arrival of their first child. Sarah was in her ninth month of pregnancy and the time had come for them to head to the hospital. It was a crisp autumn evening when they arrived to the hospital's entrance. Catching a theme here of how ChatGPT writes, by the way. So for any teachers that are getting papers from their students, they talk about once upon a time or crisp autumn evenings. Think about where that's coming from. Sarah's contractions had become regular and increasingly intense. Michael, with a mixture of excitement and nervousness, guided Sarah inside. They were greeted by the warm smile of a... Sorry. I can't even read it. A warm smile of a nurse at the reception desk who quickly admitted them to labor and delivery ward. In their private room, Sarah changed into a hospital gown. Why? (laughs) While Michael unpacked the bag they had meticulously prepared. The room was equipped with monitors to track the baby's heartbeat and the progress of contractions. The medical team led by Dr. Anderson introduced themselves and assured the couple that they were in capable hands. As the hours passed, Sarah's contractions grew stronger. Dr. Anderson, with the support of the labor and delivery nurses, closely monitored her progress. Sarah had chosen to receive an epidural to manage the pain, and the anesthesiologist administered it skillfully, providing her with much-needed relief. And informed consent, I'm sure. We're talking about that. <laughs> with the epidural in place, Sarah felt more comfortable and was able to rest briefly before the active labor phase began. Michael stood by her side, holding her hand, and offering words of encouragement. Together, they navigated the emotional journey of bringing their child into the world. When the time came for the, by the way, this is the computer's interpretation of what childbirth is like. (laughs) (laughs) Not Not too far off. Yeah, you think? Okay. When the time came for the final stage of labor, Sarah, now fully dilated, began to push with all her strength. The room was filled with a sense of determination and anticipation. Dr. Anderson and the nurses guided Sarah through each push. And after a series of intense efforts, a beautiful moment arrived, their baby's head emerged, followed by the rest of the body. With a cry that filled the room, their baby was born. Dr. Anderson carefully placed the newborn on Sarah's chest for skin to skin contact. (laughs) Good for AI. (laughs) Couple marveled at the tiny life they had brought into the world, tears of joy streaming down their faces. Michael cut the umbilical cord. I don't know how long they waited, though. (laughs) And together, they shared their first moments as a family. And then it goes on about postpartum, and we'll go into that. (laughs) And and the secret Pitocin that they don't tell them about? Oh, yeah, yeah, they didn't mention any of it. (laughs) No, but see, this is what, when people are going to search in the future on Google or whatever else, that'll be the hospital story that will come up. Mm Mm-hmm. He's shaking his head for those of you that can't see him. <laughs> yeah. I am SMHing. Right. Yeah. It, it's uh it's unbelievable to me that we've reached a point where this I again I, I feel like my father, you know, who used to, you know, who told me he used to go to the movies for a nickel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah. And it, the good know, old days. Yeah. And they, they didn't have a phone in their house. They had a black and white TV with four channels on it and rabbit ears on the top of it. And 
I guess I am a dinosaur when it comes to that sort of thing. But this is this is frightening to me. It's more frightening than than a lot of the medical things that are happening to women because this is what's going to be uh, what you're going to read in textbooks. This is what you're going to read in Wikipedia because there will be no textbooks anymore. It'll all be online. And we're all going to be gaslit to believe that that's how it goes at the hospital. The receptionist was welcoming. <laughs> what are you doing here? Who told you you could come? Did you call ahead? You know, can I see your insurance card? Would, you know, I, got, I got welcoming uh, nurses. I have to say the nurses oh. that we met at uh, the last couple of weeks uh, have all been lovely. So had very good experiences. Yes. Yes. I know. I know. Okay. Okay. So after our break, let's come back and let's talk about epidurals. So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> they <laughs> do. Yeah. <laughs> And the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. All right, we're back. We're back. <laughs> I love how that works. I just, I can't, I can't get enough of that. So you wanted to talk about breech birth this week, but 
I knew we weren't going to have enough time to do it because breach birth is something that I could, that, I, you know, I, I, on the first day of my breach seminar, I talk about breach birth for six hours. We got a couple of letters asking us to talk about the downsides of breach um, and some specific questions. And so um, I think it'll be, we realized that we had never really covered breach, which is kind of nutty. Um, so that, that um, episode is coming soon. Right. But this episode is more about um, epidurals and because they're universal. It's really interesting that in some countries, the epidural rate is like 20%. And in some hospitals, it's as high as 90, 90%. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Well, in America, in hospitals that have anesthesiology departments, excuse me, um, yeah, they're going to use them. I mean, if you buy a, if you buy a new uh, Keurig machine, you start using it. I mean, you might have drank coffee all your life without a Keurig, and now you have a Keurig and you start using it. It's the same thing. You might have uh, n- never had in-house anesthesia before, and now you have in-house anesthesia. You're not going to just let them sit around and do nothing. You're going to start using them so that these things get uh, propagated and pushed on people, and you see crazy, crazy rates. But if people saw, and you know what, this is something that I, I was blown away by um, because I've never experienced something like being on the spillover podcast with Alex Clark, but the exposure that that I got and that the podcast got from that uh, was incredible. There, there, there were over 2.4 million plays of the reel That's that, great. that was on Instagram. And, you know, the, the, the podcast is on your Spotify and Apple and iTunes and and the um, you can watch the whole thing live on YouTube or not live, but you can watch the video on YouTube of me and Alex Clark having a conversation. And and one of the things we did end up talking about was the was epidurals. And I talked about the thing that, you know, I actually learned the basis of this from our good friend, Alex Evangelidi. She's the one that planted the seeds in my in my mind about um, how the epidural interferes with with the mother baby communication, because it's not something that I was, that I would ever have thought of on my own. Um, when I was a medicalized physician, I don't think it's thought of at all. I think, again, there are many, many people who compare an epidural of pain in labor to having a pain with a toothache and that no one would have a tooth drilled without lidocaine. Why would you have a baby without an epidural? And that thinking is the obtuse sort of concrete thinking that most that's taught in medicine because they don't look at the bigger picture. They don't look at the underlying processes that are going on and why labor is the way it is. Bliss, you've heard me say this many times, but I always ask the question when I talk, start talking about this to people is, is this basic question, why is labor painful? What's the point? Because if it was not valuable to be painful, then you'd think over eons of time, evolution would have gotten rid of the significantly painful labor because it's more likely that a mammal that's in pain is going to be unable to defend itself or even make noise when it's in labor and therefore more likely to be prey for a predator. Uh, So the, the silent mammal, the quiet mammal would probably be the one that's going to survive more than the one that's talk that that's verbalizing. And yet, in all mammals, even though they're often very quiet in labor, they all experience pain. And we know this because we, they've done experiments on sheep and stuff where they look at 
catecholamine release and stuff uh, during labor, and they can see peaks and valleys with each contraction. So they know there's these hormones being released. Uh, so all mammals experience pain with labor. But so then if you think. And I, and yeah. I would like to say pain is um, subjective. Yeah, it's right? a word. Yeah, it's subjective. So um, I think that we we use that. It's like um, we're describing it, but there's definitely a negative connotation to that word. And so um, and the reason this is not the topic of of the podcast, especially right now, but I guess an epidural, why we use an epidural is right. Um, but it's, it's an intense sensation. That's why the mammals that um, are quiet, you know, they are just experiencing some shifts and changes inside of their body. They don't necessarily have that, the language that we do as humans that puts on top of it, like, this is a bad thing. Something bad is happening to me. And that's what ends up causing the stress and tension that makes that discomfort intensify. But if you're really looking at it objectively, it's 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 an intense sensation in our body that we haven't experienced before. So. Uh, point well taken. The, the, the yeah. word pain is a, a word that we really sh I shouldn't be using. Uh, I mean, we use surge. We use intense situation, like you just said, uh, intense <laughs> But it just—I'm just summarizing it. Mm -hmm. So I—but I, I agree with you, uh, percent mm -hmm. that you know some people don't consider it to be painful, and others consider it to be extremely painful. So it's just a work thing for the purpose of having this conversation. But I'll try—I'll try not to. <laughs> um, so because I like the fact that you said it's an intense situation, because either way, this is what happens. Sensation. What did I say? situation okay so and and so you, when you think of labor as being an intense sensation <laughs> happening in maybe every three minutes or so every four minutes whatever it is um your body responds to an intense uh sensation <laughs> by putting out certain neurotransmitters and in, in, included in those but not limited to are things like adrenaline and what does adrenaline do for your body well adrenaline makes you more alert but it also re, uh, spaces out your contractions a little bit it opens up all kinds of other pathways too uh, you put out uh, cortisol because cortisol is what you deal with when you have a stressful situation and no matter what word you want to describe it having that sort of discomfort in your body is going to be stressful uh, whenever you have discomfort in your body you're going to be putting out endorphins body's going to try to um, let your own body's op opiates of some kind. And then you obviously every two, three minutes, you're putting out surges of oxytocin, which makes your uh, uterus contract, but it also makes you feel this warm sense of love and attachment. So these are things that are going, uh, um, coming out of you every three to four minutes, and then they dissipate and the receptors regenerate. And then another three to four minutes, it happens again and again. So, but every time you're having one of these intense situations or, or sensations, um, your baby's world is also changing. For the first time in nine months, your baby's experiencing things it's never experienced before, like maybe diminished blood flow from its placenta, or maybe it's getting squished, or maybe the water goes, and then now its head is getting squished. And if every three to four minutes, 
baby's getting a waft of mom's adrenaline and cortisol and opiates or endorphins and oxytocin, the baby's aware that this is normal because these are the normal signals I've been getting from mom throughout the entire nine months of pregnancy. I've been communicating back and forth with my mom this way. And so therefore the baby seems to be feel, feel reassured and the baby knows it can tolerate labor because mom's with it. I know that's, it's a bit emotional to say it that way, but that's the best way I can think of describing it. So then a woman gets an epidural and she's now numb. So she's no longer feeling her contractions. They may even space out a little bit and they may even start Pitocin. So what does Pitocin do to your oxytocin secretion? Well, it, it eliminates it pretty much altogether. Uh, and it doesn't have the bonding and the sense of warmth that oxytocin does. And then you also, since you're not in pain, you're not putting out uh, adrenaline, you're not putting out cortisol, and you're not putting out endorphins anymore. Yet every three to four minutes, or maybe even closer, because Pitocin has now started because the contraction spaced out, the baby's still getting squished and, and um, going through something it's never gone through before. And uh, there's no mom. Mom's gone. So the baby's left to deal with this on its own. And what happens then is the, and you see this all too often in the hospital, you see a, a gradual or even sudden change in the baby's fetal status. You see a change in the heart rate, a rising baseline, or you see D cells. Uh, and then they don't like the, what they're seeing on the monitor because it's called a category two tracing, which nobody really knows what it means because it doesn't really correlate with outcomes. And then, um, so they say, well, they'll be able to shut the Pitocin off. So they turn the Pitocin off and the baby's heart rate gets a little bit better. But now the babies, they, they have this nebulous diagnosis of fetal intolerance to labor. And so they end up taking you for a C-section, whether it's urgent or non-urgent. And you end up having a C-section, they get a baby out that comes out crying with Apgars of nine and nine and is doing perfectly fine. Everybody's happy because they got a great baby when they were having a suspicious tracing, which nobody knows what it meant. And that's when we get those stories of, thank God I was in the hospital because my baby and I would were saved by having this c-section and it gets back to the theme that i said at the very beginning is that you know they push fear or interventions and then they you know they offer relief from their their own interventions this is this is sort of the, the, along that same line so can i prove that this is true no but it can anybody with any sense of uh, of logic and common sense in their brain can see that that, that there's a Nature designs these things for a reason. And there's a whole hormonal system that the mother and baby are communicating. It's a, it's a beautiful symphony that goes on between them. And then every time we mess it up with medication or with adding stress to her, telling her scary stuff or giving her, or giving her drugs, which changed the whole thing. Then we often see the baby deteriorate and, and, you know, along with the rise of, of um, cesarean section, the rise of chronic illness in babies, the rise of uh, these other rises that we've seen in the last 30, has been the, uh, the rise in the use of an epidural. So, it, you know, correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, but no one's looking at it, or pretty much no one's looking at it. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor, Birthfit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member 
as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program, is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client, um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed, nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, Pretty the birth amazing. community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. So that brings me to an article that um, was sent to me by uh, Dr. Flores, actually, uh, our friend. And it's the title of the article. It's, it was released just this year. In 2023, it was on the Wiley Online Library, and it was uh, released in Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynecology, 2023, uh, Volume 62. And the title of it is Effect of Intrapartum Epidural Analgesia on the Rate of Emergent Delivery for Presumed Fetal Compromise, a nationwide registry-based cohort study out of um, uh, the Netherlands. That's Dutch, right? The Dutch is Netherlands, right? Yeah, right. I just got to be sure. Okay. So um, before I get into it, do you want to comment on anything I've said? Any more comment on what I've said so far? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. And I personally did have an epidural with my first um, after a long, uh, very long labor at a birth center. And my personal experience of having the epidural was just feeling so disconnected from my own, you know, you talk about the baby feeling disconnected from the mom's experience. Well, for me, I felt so disconnected from my own body and from 
feeling my baby at all. Like, you know, I, I couldn't figure out how to push like that. I had been pushing for six hours, but now that I had the epidural, the, the ability to be able to connect what my brain was thinking to how it affected my body was completely disconnected. And some people like that. Some people have had epidurals and they, they're, they loved that part of it. For me, um, it, it was not a sensation or feeling that I actually liked or wanted to ever repeat again, having to do with childbirth because I wanted to be able to be connected to what was happening inside of my body. And like we always do on the podcast, I mean, I'll make this caveat. We're not condemning epidurals. What we're trying to do or what I'm trying to do is make sure that when people decide whether or not to get one, they have the information that they can make an informed Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The thing you're not told. You're not Mm -hmm. told any of the things that I just told you, nor are you told the things that are going to come out in the next few minutes. So let's let's get into it because again, epidurals and, and they say this in the article that they're not anti-epidural. They say uh, epidurals are a godsend in some cases. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that like at Northwestern University, ninety-five percent of women are getting epidurals. That's crazy. That is yeah. crazy. Yeah. The the rate of epidurals, I think, in this study and overall in the Netherlands was nineteen percent. Which I was like, when as, as I was reading the article, I was like, yeah, I thought it was so much higher, but it's because it is higher here in America than, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's higher in America because uh, one, of profit, and two, culture. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that birth should be painless, um, that there's no reason. Again, I, I wrote a blog, and people can find it on my website going on the blog section. I wrote it years ago called Labor is Not a Toothache. And I just discussed what I just kind of discussed with you. It's evolved. My conversations evolved a little bit since then, but it's still um, a very important point to understand that we're not just like no one would have recommend you have knee surgery without anesthesia. Right. But it's not the same thing. There's a connection here between mother and baby that's been designed by nature to do it a certain way. And every time we intervene, in nature's design, two things must happen. One is that the um, intervention is definitely going to cause some downstream ripples. And two, we must prove that the intervention is safe and doesn't really alter things. And the, that the the intervention is the thing that has to be proven it's safe. In other words, you have to, when you take something that that Mother Nature would normally have done, and you alter that, you don't have to prove that Mother Nature's course was safe. You have to prove that the intervention into Mother Nature's course was safe. And that is, I think, misconceived by many researchers and many academicians who don't think of that. They look at how can we improve safety, but they're not really, but they're only looking at one narrow endpoint like neonatal death or, or whatever. They're not looking at the long-term picture of what are we doing and how are we affecting and what downstream consequences are happening because of this intervention we're putting in now. And that gets back to my whole talk on stage one thinking where people, you know, you don't ever ask the next question and then what, and then what happens? Let's numb every woman in labor because that's a good idea, you know. And we have C-sections and the babies will be safe. It's okay. Babies who have problems, maybe autoimmune problems, bio, uh, microbiome problems, all kinds of problems because of that. Who knows? 
Well, we know, but okay. So this study uh, was a nationwide registry-based cohort. So again, not what you call level A evidence. It's 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 retrospective review, uh, looking at um, singleton pregnancies from 36 to 42 weeks with no anomalies, no significant pro medical problems in any of these women. They, they, they buried those out of them between 2014 and 2018. And they included uh, out of out of that 629,951 women, 120,426 cases received epidurals. That's 19%. Was slightly higher in primips than in multips. Um, there were 86,957 that received alternative analgesia. And I, I think they defined that somewhere else. I'll get to it in this. Oh, here. Alternative analgesia was defined as sedatives opioids, non-opioids, like I guess Advil or Motrin, starting or Toradol, starting in the first stage of labor. So they're not talking about nitrous here, nitrous oxide, okay? okay. And 422,568 of the women, or 67%, received no, no analgesia. Okay. How, how could they have a baby? <laughs> they probably had them faster. <laughs> not necessarily. The primary outcome was the emergency delivery for presumed fetal compromise. That's what they were looking for. Uh -huh. So results, among women who received epidural anesthesia, 13.2% underwent emergency delivery for presumed fetal compromise. Compared to 4.1% of women who had no analgesia. And 7% of women who had opioids or non-steroidals analgesia. 13 to 4.1, that's over a threefold increase in the rate of delivery for presumed fetal compromise by emergency C-section or emergency delivery. I guess it could have been forceps or vacuum too, but um, the relative risk of presumed fetal compromise after epidural anesthesia versus no anesthesia uh, was higher in, in actually in Paris women than it was in Primips but it was still higher in both and statistically significant with p-values that reached significance. Um, the emergency delivery rate following epidural anesthesia was, this is very important, was highest in, in those with a birth weight less than the fifth percentile. And the emergency uh, C-section rate or intervention rate did follow the growth curve. So the smaller your baby was, the more likely your baby was not to tolerate epidural anesthesia which actually makes perfect sense because the hypothesis is that the adverse effects of epidural anesthesia are exacerbating by, by reduced placental function. While epidural anesthesia provides effective pain relief during labor, alternate strategies for pain management may be preferable in pregnancies with high background risk of fetal compromise. In other words, women who have growth-restricted babies, truly growth-restricted, Women who have placental compromise, whatever that means on uh, maybe on their Doppler studies or whatever else, if you're going to tell them they need to be induced for that, you should also tell them, by the way, when you get induced, if you get an epidural, your rate of emergency C-section or emergency intervention is going to be significantly higher than if you are able to manage this labor by having a doula and getting up and getting in water and moving around and not taking any sort of medication. Right. But I don't think that's the way it works. I think that most women who in, go in for an uh, induction 
are influenced, at least in my experience, are influenced to have epidural anesthesia. Well, they definitely, there's no, there's no true informed consent around the downsides of any of it. The, the biggest one that they talk about is a headache. Yeah. They talk yeah. about a headache. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. But this is the thing that we've always, that I've, I've known forever because I've seen it hundreds of times. Yeah. Shortly mm-hmm. after a woman gets an epidural, within about 20 minutes or so, you'll often see a fetal D-cell, fetal bradycardia. And they'll, they'll take the peripheral blood pressure and the peripheral blood pressure will be fine. And they'll say, well, it's not a drop in blood pressure. Well, yeah, it is. It's a drop in central blood pressure and decreased perfusion to the, to the placenta, which may or may already be already more compromised in a baby that has growth restriction, which is why right. this thing makes sense. So they said epidural anesthesia is known to lead to maternal hemodynamic changes, including hypotension. So for well, all my anesthesiologist friends who say it doesn't, um, you have to answer to that, which is one of the most common side effects and an acute decrease in maternal plasma epinephrine levels. So because you suddenly are less, what do you call it? Intense cessations. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting out less adrenaline. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. So adrenaline affects uterine blood flow. I mean, it, it, it preferentially puts blood where it's supposed to go. That's how your adrenergic system works. Mm-hmm. So, so that results in temporary uterine hypotonia. So the uterus also becomes hypotonic without with less adrenaline, which is interesting because that's what they say. That's what they say. Although adrenaline tends to space contractions out, lack of adrenaline causes the uterus to maybe not contract very well. Both mechanisms can result in decreased uteroplacental perfusion. Modest suppression of maternal blood pressure is of limited concern in healthy fetuses but can have serious ramifications for those with reduced placental reserves. Okay. Yeah. So again, this was a retrospective population cohort study, which has flaws. And by the way, it it, it took into consideration 96% of all the births in the Netherlands in that four year period of time. So it was very comprehensive. And again, the primary outcome was emergency delivery for presumed fetal compromise Emergency delivery was almost always by cesarean, unless they were complete, complete, and plus two, in which case they would put forceps or vacuum on. Um, let's see. Paris women received, receiving the Paris, meaning woman who's already had at least one baby, receiving an epidural, more often had a history of cesarean section. So the women, they did not, they included in their Paris group women who had a C-section with their first baby which in our, my world and what we told our paper, we call those functional primips. They called them multips. So that could skew the data one way or the other. Um, among nulliparous women, 30.8% received an epidural. Among Paris women, 10.2% received an epidural. Can you imagine having an epidural rate of only 30% in primips? Overall, 19%. And also, they gave primips epidurals at three times the rate they gave them to multips. So that was why, because labors went faster. Yeah. Experience too, I think, you know, um, but sometimes, well, sometimes once you've already had the experience, maybe you know how you might want to prepare 
differently this time to be able to avoid having to do that this time. Some people know that they just want it, but other people, you know, I think that they are informed to know that they want to do something different. So they're better prepared. Compared to women who receive no analgesia, women who receive labor, labor epidural are more likely to have a prolonged second stage. Mm -hmm. Pushing. Mm -hmm. You're not told that. Mm -hmm. uh, an episiotomy. In, in their study, 34% got an episiotomy versus 16.1%. Both of those are off the chart high. Yeah. But with an epidural, you're twice in that country during those years, you were twice as likely to get an epidural and one, th I mean, a, a, an episiotomy. And, and up to at least one third of all women got an episiotomy in the Netherlands in those, those years. Neonates born after maternal interpartum epidural, epidural use compared with those born to mothers who received no analgesia more often had a five minute APGAR score below seven. And we're more often admitted to the NICU, 3.7% to 1.3%. So an epidural, longer second stage, more likely to have an episiotomy, more likely to have an APGAR score lower than seven at five minutes, more likely for your baby to be put in the NICU. Again, small increases, yes, but... If you're going to use the same so numerical trickery that they often use to um, push, funnel you down a path, they use the thing called relative risk rather than actual risk, um, then this would be impressively impressive data <laughs> to <laughs> tell you that these are the things you should know before you just voluntarily get an, get an epidural. Um and, the, and again, the biggest factor that I got from this paper was that the relative risk of fetal compromise after epidural compared with uh, no, no analgesia um, were significant and consistently modified by the birth weight percentile in nulliparous and Paris women of the baby, suggesting the adverse effects of the epidural are exacerbated by reduced placental function. And that would make perfect sense. And so women having... Um, a baby that is being, in, you're being induced because they feel your baby isn't doing well inside. It's got oligohydramnios or, or absent color Doppler flow studies or ones that aren't reassuring, or your baby is truly growth restricted. Um, you should think twice before getting an epidural because you are more likely to compromise your baby by having that epidural. There's there's a lot more on this, but I think that the, ultimately it gets the to the, the basic point that I'm trying to make, which again is not to vilify epidurals. They're great. They do great things, but the uh, indiscriminate use of them, the overuse of them, the idea that the that they'd say, well, you know, there's no, you know the only risk to an epidural is is you might feel really numb and you might get a headache, you know. They may tell you, well, if we give you too much, you could go up high and you could have a hard time breathing, but then we'll control, we'll take care of that if we have to, that sort of thing. But they, but they don't talk about interfering in the beautiful, like I said, symphonic dance that goes on between mother and baby. Um, and this is just, this is just some evidence that some of these things happen because of that interference, 
they may they may be defined as a as a change in blood flow or a drop in blood pressure, but that's all related. It's all related to the same thing that you're interfering with nature's beautiful design of a mother and baby communicating, uh, and then you're causing all these problems, which then you end up having to solve by your interventions, which then may lead to lifelong problems for baby, mother, and of course, mother's future babies. Yeah. Well, thank you for, um, as always, um, bringing up this interesting topic and kind of taking a deep dive into that study. I think it's, it's always good too to like see different ways that things are managed in different countries too, because it just gives us a broader perspective. Yeah. And there was one other study that, that actually was a, it was a better study because it was a multi-center randomized controlled trial. It was a much smaller one. I didn't send it to you because I didn't want to overwhelm you <laughs> with homework this morning. Um, but I just want to read the conclusions of that study, which came to the same conclusions, but they said, interpartum epidural anesthesia is associated with a higher rate of emergency delivery for presumed fetal compromise compared to patient control treatment with, oh, this one, this one compares it by the way, to, to um, having PCA, which is like an, an opiate or a pain medicine in an IV that you can push the, your own button. So it compares epidurals to another, another mo a modem of pain control. Right. And they found that um, pregnant women and their obstetric, uh, uh, they found that there was more fetal compromise in the epidural group than in the ones where you could do PCA, patient control analgesia. Pregnant women and their obstetric caregivers should be aware of these risks and should consider alternative pain relief in properly selected women. So it's just something uh, for people to think about and to ask their obstetricians. And again, what's really weird about epidurals is you don't get consented by an anesthesiologist until you're about to get it put in. Because right. you never right. see one during your pregnancy. And I'm not thinking, you can, I don't even know if you can make a consult with an anesthesiologist prior to your pregnancy to talk to them about it. Might be an interesting thing to check into with your hospital and see if they, the, the anesthesia department offers that mm -hmm. and have that conversation and ask these questions. Do you know what your options are before you go into labor? Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, and, and if you want an epidural, that's fine. Just know, you should know about the benefits and risks of an epidural, not just the benefits. Right, exactly. Right. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> no, actually, I wanted to say happy Sunday. I hope you get to watch like football games or something fun like that today. Yeah, sometimes when I go off on one of these tangents, I start reading an article. I know that this gets very dry, but but we did. I, I do get good feedback from people. Um, and so, and by the way, it makes me smarter. Because yeah. I, I probably read so many articles every week and a lot of you listeners you send them to me damn you <laughs> <laughs> because i have a, a, my you know my ocd doesn't really allow me to to not look at something i almost always respond if i don't respond it's not because i didn't read it it's because you know sometimes things don't call for a response but that's the case so well, in an upcoming podcast, we're going to have uh, a, a couple that had home twins with us. I'm going to have them on and we're going to do breach. And our, as you said, our topic list is just massive. I know. <laughs> massive. We, ha we have enough topics to, uh, to keep us busy for a couple more years. So we'll just keep doing our best to get through the ones that you guys send us. 
And thank you for being our fellow travelers. Um, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, Lister, because this will come out after Thanksgiving. So I yes, hope you have a happy you, Thanksgiving. You, you oh, and you know what? Maybe lastly, if we want to, we can always edit it out. But it's a tough week for you. You want to talk about that just briefly? Um, this is the uh, fourth year after um my daughter passed so yeah this time is it's it's interesting as we're going into the holidays I'm definitely I think this year more present to the fact that every holiday from here on out will just be me and my boys and won't she won't be part of it and so yeah yeah I, I, and I and I love you and I love Sky and I will tell you that it's really interesting to see the seasons change here. And that event has become part of my November. There's no way out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I hope she's singing away up in heaven. And Aww. if people voice, they can go back to one of our podcasts where we said, let's talk about Sky and they can listen to the beautiful voice that she had and remember her. Yeah, thanks, Stu. Um, thanks for your friendship and your partnership. And um, I'll see I'll you next see week, you. by the way. No, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Oh, and you, uh, you see me, see me, see me, yeah. see me. Yeah, I'll, see you. I'll be in Santa Barbara to come visit you after Thanksgiving. So I'll see you yeah. then. Good. All right, I'll everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 